0: Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Let's talk about the Bible a little bit. What do you say? Is that okay? Talk about the Bible? Well, how we read the Bible is as important as if we read the Bible. It's not a matter of just reading the Bible and something magically happens, or you accrue merit, or something like that. No, how we read the Bible determines whether or not we will actually spiritually profit from it. If we read the Bible in the way that Jesus taught on the Emmaus Road, If we read the Bible the way that is set forth in the New Testament by the apostles, if we read the Bible the way the church fathers, the first Christian theologians taught how to read the Bible, if we do it that way, if we we read in the way of Christ and apostles and early Christians, we do not read from Genesis to Malachi, the Old Testament without Jesus, and then finally find Jesus when we get to Matthew. That is certainly not how to read the Bible. And it's not the pattern given to us by Christ and His apostles and the early Christians. What we do is we read the whole Bible about Jesus. The Bible doesn't bear witness to itself. The Bible never asks us to believe in the Bible. The Bible asks us to believe in God, to believe in Christ. So Jesus says, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Jesus says, no. It is the Scriptures that bear witness to me. And Jesus says, if you want to have life, you must come to me. So what the Bible does best is stand as an inspired sign, always pointing to Jesus. Not just when we get to Matthew, but throughout all of the Bible. And so, from now until November, we are finding Jesus in Genesis. You won't find the name Jesus in Genesis, but you'll find Jesus. We've already found Jesus in the story of creation because Christ is the creator. This creation is the good creation of Christ. Last Sunday we found Jesus in the story of Adam, Adam, humankind, male and female, formed from the dust of the earth and receiving the breath of God. We found Jesus in the story of Adam because Jesus is the second Adam. The recapitulation of the human race, giving the human race a new start. Today, we're going to find Jesus in the story of Noah. I'm praying for it to rain during my sermon. That would just be so awesome. We're going to find Jesus in the story of Noah. Now, to understand the Noah story, you can't start with Noah. You have to back up. To understand the meaning, because there is a meaning, it's not just the story story to tell. To understand the meaning of the Noah story, we have to start with a fellow named Lamech, three generations before Noah, because it's all tied together. So the Noah story is there in, you know, Genesis 6, 7, 8. But we have to start in Genesis 4, three generations before Noah. Genesis 4, verse 23. Lamech said, I have killed a man for wounding me, A young man for striking me. If Cain is avenged sevenfold, truly Lamech is 70 times seven. What's going on here? Well, you you remember Cain. This is the, the first son of Adam and Eve, and he has his brother, Abel, who becomes his rival, and Cain kills his brother. God had warned Cain. He says, look, There's something terrible crouching at your door. You really need to overcome this. Cain did not overcome it. It overcame Cain. Cain didn't see himself as his brother's keeper, but he saw himself as his brother's competitor, and that led ultimately to the violence of murder. And Cain, in his actions, had let loose an evil that had basically become uncontrollable six generations later. Lamech's bloody limerick, as I describe it, he says, "I I have slain a man for wounding me. I've killed a man for striking me. If Cain's vengeance is sevenfold, my vengeance is 70 times seven. You remember, there was a mark put on Cain. And that if anyone killed Cain, then vengeance would be extracted seven times. I mean, seven people from his clan would be killed, that sort of idea. And uh, Lamech takes that, and he's going to multiply it times 70. So he says, if somebody strikes me, I'll kill them. If somebody wounds me, I will slay them. And what we are seeing here is the exponential rise of violence in the world before the flood. This is the big problem in the world before the flood. Exponential violence. Kind of an almost all against all violence, a Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome antediluvian world. It's it's a hyper-violent world and we see that expressed in Limech's bloody limerick. Now the problem with disproportionate violence is later addressed, much later as time goes by, in the Law of Moses. So. We find this three times. It's in in Exodus, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. Here's the version from Leviticus, Leviticus 24, Law of Moses. If anyone injures his neighbor as he has done, it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The injury inflicted shall be the injury to be suffered. Now, if we can hear it right, in the context of the time, this is actually a right step. This is a move in the right direction. This is an attempt to control, out of control, exponential violence. So Lamech says, says, strike me, I'll kill you. You knock out my tooth, I'll kill you. You knock out my eye, I'll kill you. And the law of Moses, though, seeks to restrain this. In the law of Moses, retaliatory violence is not forbidden, but it must be proportionate and never disproportionate. So, you knock out my eye, somebody's going to take out your eye. You knock out my tooth, we'll take your tooth. You break my arm, we'll break your arm. Well, it's at least better than, you know, you look at me sideways, I'm going to kill you. Now, um... Yes, this was a right step in the right direction, an attempt to control out-of-control exponential violence. But much later in the big story the Bible tells, because it is a big story, a new Moses on a new mountain will issue a new law. A new Moses, remember there was the prophecy that God would raise up another prophet like unto Moses, that's made much of in the New Testament, who that prophet might be. And he goes up on a new mountain, not Sinai, but the Mount of Beatitudes. And he issues a new law, and Jesus says this in Matthew 5, You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Yeah, it's in Exodus, it's in Leviticus, it's in Deuteronomy, it's in the Law of Moses. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you... notice, Notice the authority that Jesus presumes. You've heard the law of Moses say. You've heard the Bible say, I'm going to say something else. Who can do that? The Word of God. Who is Jesus? The Word of God. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek... Turn the other also. That's what Jesus says. We don't get to pick and choose, you know. I like like when Jesus dies on the cross for my sins. I like that part. But when it comes to, you know, vengeance and violence and all that, I kind of prefer Moses. No, you don't get to do that. Not and call yourself a Christian, right? Seventy times seven is first found in the Bible in Lemek's equation of retaliation. He says, I'm going to up the ante here. He's trying to instill fear, you understand, in everybody around him. That's the point. Because that's, that's the problem. That's what's happened with fallen humanity. We're afraid. Meanness is the mask that fear wears to make itself look tough. Lemick is actually afraid is what he is. He's, he's, he's not, you know, as courageous as that may come across. He's actually very afraid, and he thinks, well, if I threaten exponential violence, maybe people will leave me alone. Except everybody else does the same. And then you get caught in this spiral. Seventy times seven is first found in the Bible as Lamech's equation of retaliation. That leads to a 70 times increase in vengeance and violence. Jesus turns it around into 70 times 7 forgiveness. Most people, you know, if I say 70 times 7, and I'm talking about from the Bible, many Christians will go, oh yeah, that's Matthew 18. That's that's when Peter said, how often shall somebody sin against me and I forgive him? Seven times? Jesus says, I do not say to you seven, but 70 times 7. But actually, Jesus is working from something that was already there. Jesus is inverting things. Lamech says, 70 times 7 vengeance. Jesus says, 70 times 7 forgiveness this is part of how Jesus saves the world so and in fact if you, if you listen to the law if anyone injures his neighbor as it is done it shall be done to him it, it, that's that sounds like a, a weird version a funhouse mirror version of the golden rule as it is done it shall be done to him fracture for fracture eye for eye tooth for tooth That's Moses' attempt at mitigation, trying to control things, keep it under control. So you break my arm, someone's going to break your arm. But Jesus says, no, 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 we're not going to think about it like that anymore. Instead of saying, "Uh, well, he broke my arm, so the fair thing is that his arm be broken, Jesus says, no, I want you to ask this question. Do you want your arm broken? No. Then don't break somebody else's arm. But what if they broke my arm? Forgive them. Christian life, no, is easy. Christian life is possible. Remember remember that? That's that's our long-time-ago friend Edgar Chacon from San Jose, Costa Rica. His, His English wasn't perfect, but his theology was good. And he would say, Christian life, no, is easy. Christian life is possible. All right, so Jesus says, no, you don't ask yourself, what would be the proportionate revenge? You ask yourself, what would I want done to me? Do I want my tooth knocked out, my eye knocked out? I mean, if we just keep it right there, you know, as some have observed, an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. I mean, eventually you start running out of eyes and teeth and arms to break. And so Jesus offers us something new. Now, it's not an abandonment of justice. That's not the point, not at all. But justice is driven by a restorative vision and not a retributive vision. The point isn't just to punish someone, to hurt them because they have hurt, right? That's that's not a concept of biblical justice that comes from the living God whose foundation of His throne is righteousness and justice. God doesn't say the solution for the world is when people hurt people, we'll hurt them. No, the vision for justice in Scripture is how do we restore these people? How do we restore them to the community, to right relationship, to right relation within their own soul? How do we restore them? How do we bring them out of their fear? How do we bring them out of their shame? How do we restore them? So Lamech, way back a long time ago, in the antediluvian world, offers violent vengeance. Moses later legislates a restrained mitigation. Jesus calls us to radical forgiveness. Lamech says, if you strike me, I will kill you. Moses says, if you strike me, somebody will strike you. Jesus says, if you strike me, I will not strike back. I will forgive you. Seventy times seven. All right, we have raced way ahead of our story, so we gotta back up. We gotta back up. Let's get to uh, the days of Noah. Genesis chapter 6, verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight. The earth was filled with violence. Yeah, because Cain had started something and Lamech had multiplied it 70 times 7. The earth was filled with violence. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. That's what You let violence get out of control, it can bring about the end of all flesh. All against all violence and everybody gets killed. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight and the earth was filled with violence and God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me for the earth is filled with violence. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. The sin that brought about the flood was violence. Now, I think maybe because of movies and stuff, we tend to imagine other lurid sins, but in fact, they're not mentioned. The only sin mentioned responsible for the flood is violence, and it's mentioned twice. So to make the focus of the Noah story solely about the animals two by two onto the ark, or this great deluge is somewhat to miss the point. I heard years ago a preacher whose sermon on Noah basically consists in him being astounded at how much rain there was. And he would calculated, well, you know, if, all, if the highest mountain is covered, how, long, how hard did it have to rain for 40 days and 40 nights? I mean, for you to go from sea level to the sea now being at 29,035 feet, the, the elevation of the summit of Mount Everest. And the answer is a rather fantastic 362 inches an hour every hour for 40 days and 40 nights. (laughs) That's a lot of rain. But that's not the point of the story. The point of the story isn't to figure out, can we get an expedition to go up on Mount Ararat and find Noah's Ark? The point of the story is to grapple with the question, why was the world so dirty that it needed such a big bath? And violence is the answer to that. So... In the Noah story, the solution to human violence is divine violence, because we're very early in the story, the big story that the Bible tells, and it's a long way to Jesus. Nevertheless, from the very beginning, the very Christian beginning, um, the apostles and church fathers had no trouble finding Jesus in the Noah story. So we're going to ask the important questions. We're not going to ask, you know, can you really put two of every animal on that boat? How that work? Can you really do that? We're not going to ask, you know, did it really read 362 inches an hour every hour for 40 days and 40 nights? We're not going to ask that question. We're going to ask the question that we're supposed to ask. Where do we find Jesus? Where do we find Jesus in this story? Well, first of all, we find Jesus in Noah himself. Now, hold on. Try not to get confused here. The father of Noah is Lamech. Not that Lamech. You know, there's more than one Lamech in Genesis. You said, I did not know that. That's why you come to church. Not the, not the bloody Limerick, the bloody Lamech with his bloody Limerick of vengeance. Not that one. This is a different one. This, this is, well, I'll clarify Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch. And you say, why, why didn't you tell me? Of course, we know that. Yes, yes. All right, so Lamech, son of Methuselah, son of Enoch, is the father of Noah. Genesis 5, 29. Lamech named his son Noah, saying, he will comfort us in our sorrow. The name Noah sounds like the Hebrew word for comfort, relief, rest. It's kind of a pun thing where it sounds like it. Noah Sounds like the Hebrew word for comfort or relief or rest. So when the world has gone wrong, there is one in whom we are to find relief and comfort and rest. And I'll say to you, are you suffering through a time of sorrow, distress, painful toil? Well, a lot of people are right now. It's a difficult time for multiple reasons. And I think this, I could be wrong, but I'm probably not. I think most of us are feeling more stressed than we're even aware of. Because, you know, we just got to put our head down and get through all that's going on. And I don't, I don't just mean a pandemic. I mean all kinds of things that are happening simultaneously. And we know we just have to deal with it. We can't just collapse under the weight of it. We have to, you know, find a way to function. But I think that stress is internalized more than we know. And uh, we're a little bit more on edge. We're a little bit more under it. We're feeling it, although we try not to perhaps acknowledge that fully. What do you do? Well, you come to the one whom you have come to know can give you relief and comfort and rest. And Jesus says, because I'm all about finding Jesus in Genesis. So if I find out that Noah's name means this is the one that gives us comfort from our sorrows, relief from our sorrows, rest from our sorrows, then I go, oh, they called him Noah, but I know who that is. Jesus said, come to me, all you that are weary and carrying heavy burdens, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So when life is too much, too hard, too heavy, too complicated, and you're just too tired, come to Jesus. I mean, really come to Jesus. You say, how did I do that? Well, you just sit with him and say, Jesus, here I am. You said to come to you. If it's too hard, too heavy, too much. It's too hard, too heavy, too much. And I'm just too tired to do much about it. Here I am. Help me out. Just do that and see what happens. Just do that. Maybe maybe I feel like saying this. I think somebody needs to hear this, maybe here online. I think somebody here needs to quit reading the Bible, trying to find all the answers, and read one book for a while. you got 66 books in the Bible. I'm gonna, I want to reduce your Bible for a while to one. I want to you, pare your Bible down to the Gospel of John. And just read it, not looking for answers, but looking to to see Jesus, to come to Jesus. Just to hear what he says and to to be present to him. Just just read it slowly, not in a hurry. And just let Jesus, let it point you to Jesus. Let, let, Let the gospel of John point you to Jesus and believe that Jesus is there to comfort you, to give you relief, to give you rest. I think that's good counsel for somebody here. Okay, so we can find Jesus in the story of Noah as Noah, the one who brings us comfort in our sorrow. And we can find Jesus in the flood story as the flood itself, believe it or not. Where do we find Jesus in the story of Noah? Well, we find him as Noah, but we also find him as the flood. This is exactly what the Apostle Peter does in his first epistle. Peter sees the flood that cleansed the world as a prophecy of our baptism into Christ. He writes like this. God waited patiently in the days of Noah during the building of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were saved through water. And baptism, which this prefigured, now saves you. Not as the removal of dirt from the body but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is an excellent example of how early Christians read the Old Testament. In the flood story, Peter sees God not destroying the world, but baptizing the world. In the flood story, Peter, now with the lens of Christ... Sees God not destroying the world but baptizing the world. Just as the flood and Noah's day cleanse the world of its corruption, so baptism cleanses us from a corrupt, self-accusing conscience. Anybody ever have trouble with your conscience? I mean, that conscience is good, but sometimes, you know, it gets out of control. Sometimes, you know, it's like enough here. I know. Right? Anybody ever had that problem where your conscience just wouldn't give you a break? There's no mercy from your conscience? Well, this passage talks about being saved from that phenomenon. We're saved not because we're good enough or because we can convince ourselves we're saved. We're saved because we're in Christ. And baptism is that objective landmark that we can always point to. says, so How do you know you're in Christ? They said, In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and put me under water and brought me up. I'm in. And that is where you can say, I know I'm a failure. I know I'm a mess. I know I've sinned a lot, but guess what? I'm in Christ. And everything's going to be all right. Here's what St. Augustine says. Perry just loves St. Augustine, right, Perry? It's an inside joke. Perry's getting a master's degree in theology. She's been reading a lot of St. Augustine because it was assigned to her. Not her favorite. Anyway, uh, St. Augustine, said, this is, you'll like this though, Perry. St. Augustine says this. Some people have the worst consciences. <laughs> I'm just going to talk to Perry. He's talking about himself. He's talking about himself. It's self-confessional there. But anyway, some people have the worst consciences, full of every fault and crime. I mean, he couldn't even get over, you know, he stole some pears when he was like 10 years old and he's still and condemned by his conscience for. I'm just talking to Perry. Hold on. Augustine says, Some people have the worst consciences full of every fault and crime. Baptism nevertheless saves them. For on the basis of the foundation which is laid in baptism, they will be saved. So, in our baptism, Jesus drowns this Guilty self-accusatory conscience. See, that's how you read it. So you don't, you don't have to grapple with, with kind of a modern historical, yeah, but God killed the whole world. and No, no, we read it like this. My sin and my guilty conscience was drowned in my baptism. And you can make the same move when you get to the Red Sea and all of that. That's how Christians read the Old Testament. It's not something new. It's not something novel. It's not something modern. It's ancient. It's how the early Christians instructed by Jesus beginning on the Emmaus road, learned how to read the Old Testament. All right, so we can find Jesus in the the story as Noah and as the flood itself, but more than Noah or the flood, we find Jesus as, and you know this, you see it coming, the ark. Jesus is the ark. When Noah and his family entered the ark, they were in an old, corrupt world. When they left the ark, they had been transported into a cleansed and new world filled with new possibilities. There's an old corrupt world that was no longer tenable. They enter the ark, they go on a voyage. They get off the ark. Remember there's a there's a dove with an olive branch and they get off the ark and it's a world that's cleansed. It's a new world filled with new possibilities. Jesus is the ark that carries us from an old world to a new world. The Apostle Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, see Christ as the ark, and we're going to get into the ark. If anyone is in Christ, behold, a new creation. Jesus is the ark that carries us into the new world. Now, right now we live in a political moment filled with much rhetorical violence, the violence of language. Remember, the the Noah story is mostly about violence. And we live in a political moment presently that is filled with rhetorical violence violence, that threatens to break out into actual physical violence. It seems like right now that it's a hard rain going to fall. I see guns and sharp swords in the hands of young children, I want to say. So what are we to do? I recommend you enter the Ark of Christ and ride it out for a while. Enter the Ark of Christ and just kind of ride out this storm. It's going to get worse before it gets better. I recommend that you ride it out. Personally, from now until November, I have made a decision to forego political news, opinion, and analysis. Analysis. I mean, like, what, what, I need to know something I don't already know. <laughs> okay, I mean, I already know enough. I have made a decision for the well-being of my own soul from now until November to forego political news, opinion, and analysis. And there's nothing irresponsible about riding out the storm and just listening to Jesus. So that's irresponsible. That's not irresponsible. Like the world just needs somebody else, you know, angry and full of poison and vitriol. We don't need that. So, you know, I would say way less, way less, maybe like none, I would recommend way less Fox, CNN, Facebook, and sail with Jesus for a while. Maybe that's the Gospel of John. Maybe, that, maybe that's the ark as you get into the Gospel of John. You sail with Jesus. Let Jesus talk to you. Because he's going to say something different than all the other stuff you're hearing. It's too poisonous, and you need to pull away. The church fathers made a big deal about Jesus as the ark. It was one of their favorite themes. This week I read a sermon on the ark by the great 2nd century theologian, Origen of Alexandria. He's living, you know, he's preaching in the 160s, 170s, 180s, you know, in that period. And he's considered the first really great um, creative theologian in the history of the church. This week I read his sermon on the Ark, and Origen says, he makes a big deal about the three decks. How many of you knew there were three decks in the Ark? First class, business class, economy. I don't think that's that's not what he did with it. Rather, He makes a big deal about the three decks, and he says that in the three decks, he sees the salvation of the cosmos. Because the scripture says that every knee shall bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth. Three decks. In heaven, on earth, under the earth. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God and the Father. Origen says that he sees the salvation of the cosmos. Cosmos. Heaven, earth, Hades, all redeemed in Christ. I like that. And here's how I would preach Jesus as the ark in a patristic fashion. Two verses that I'll put together. Genesis 6.16. Put a door in the side of the ark. John 19.34 One of the soldiers pierced his side. Jesus is the ark that carries the cosmos away from corruption and into God's new creation. Just as there was a door placed in the side of the ark for access to salvation, so the side of Jesus was pierced so that creation might enter into the heart of Christ and be carried through the flood of destruction and arrive safely in a redeemed world where all things are made new. Amen. Stand with me. I see Jesus as Noah bringing comfort. I see Jesus as the flood that washes away all that corruption I see Jesus as an ark that can take us to a better place I see the hole in his side as a door through which all creation heaven earth and under the earth enters so that Jesus might carry it to a new world what do I believe about Noah I believe Jesus I believe in Jesus Let's confess our Christian faith, then ask for God's mercy and forgiveness, and then receive communion together. Make your confession with me, please. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord. He was conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate And walk in your ways to the glory of your name. Amen. God is gracious to all who confess their sins. And in humility, ask for mercy. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, your sins are forgiven. And this is the table, not of the church, but of the Lord. It is made ready for those who love Him and for those who want to love Him more. So come, you who have much faith, and you who have little. You who have been here often, and you who have not been here long. You who have tried to follow, and you who have failed, come. Because it is the Lord who invites you. It is His will that those who want Him should meet Him here. Right here. Right here. Amen.